I've, I've enjoyed playing here. This has been over 20 years that I've, I've been coming to Royal Melbourne. This way golf should be played. We love coming down under. Look, it's phenomenal to play. The quality of the golf's been great, but the enthusiasm of the people has been the thing that's just been amazing. Tier of courses that I'm willing to shave my neck for in Kingston Heath and Victoria. Get me out of bed to shave. Especially somewhere like Australia in the Sand Belt, and I have so many great memories of being down there. G'day and welcome to Australian Golf Passport. This is our second episode. Uh, my name is Scott Warren. I'm joined by Matt Mollica. G'day, Scott. How are you going? Very well, mate. Very well. Looking Good forward to, to doing this again. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. Really excited to get into some nitty gritty and uh, and focus on some of our best courses as each episode unfolds. Um, welcome to everyone out there, wherever you're listening. Hope that you enjoyed our first episode and hope that you get even more out of this one and the the ensuing episodes. So we are going to get into a rhythm of profiling courses and regions, but we thought first it was probably worth setting the scene of golf in Australia, um, an introduction, I guess, to the game and how it got to be this destination that you'd love to take a golf trip, uh, but also some of the practical considerations around making a trip down here because there is you know, a lot of logistics um, and a lot of things that need to be considered. And I guess one of the things that I think, Maddie, is that a lot of visitors from overseas you know, look at look at a map of the earth and see this little island in the South Pacific, but Australia is actually an exceptionally large place. Yeah, deceptively big. I think that a lot of visitors to our shores are surprised by just how big we are as a country. I remember when the Olympics were here in Sydney in 2000 that the organising committee for the Olympic Games in Sydney were chuckling amongst themselves because they were receiving emails from visitors, people intending to come along saying, what bus will I get from Sydney Harbour to Ayers Rock and will I be back in time to see the swimming finals this evening? <laughs> yeah, Australia's not exactly that accessible and pocket-sized. So travelling nice. around it is definitely yeah, a, a logistical exercise and, and it takes time. You're right. And even if you I mean, even if you wipe out Western Australia and the Northern Territory, you just focus kind of on the East Coast and the South East, it's, I think it would surprise some people that a trip that took in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Barnburgle, uh, near Launceston in Tasmania and Adelaide would be similar to, you know, if you went to the US and you tried to cover, well, went to North America and tried to cover Montreal, Washington, D.C., Charleston, Orlando and Nashville. And, you know, particularly our American visitors don't get a lot of a lot of paid vacation leave. Some of them are coming here and trying to do Australia in nine or ten days. I mean, that's that's a suicidal trip, you know, and even... For those in Europe, you know, obviously they they enjoy a bit more a bit more leave like we do in Australia. But you know, if you if you flew in, went to Dornoch, and then said you were going to go to London, Lyon, Corsica, and Salzburg, people would look at you like you're insane. Like that's a ridiculous amount of territory to cover. I guess part of that's because there's so many more attractions close together in Europe. But even so, you know, coming here, I think it pays to focus on maybe a couple of locations if you're here for a short trip. But I'm also mindful that if you come to Australia and it's going to be your one and only trip and you want to play all of our world top 100 courses, that's going to mean that you have to visit Sydney, you have to visit Melbourne, you have to visit mainland Tasmania and King Island just off the mainland of Tasmania and Adelaide. Um, that's, that's a huge amount of territory to cover. So it's a bit of, I guess, a wake-up call early on that if you're planning that trip and you've got 10 days 
you know, there's probably a tear between the advice we would give people and what we might do if we were in their shoes. You know, it's hard to resist the allure of going all the way to the other side of the earth. But, you know, you could spend 10 days doing Melbourne and surrounds and have an incredible trip. You even hear that about people who travel to Scotland. People pick like a little region and say, well, I'm going to focus on the courses in this little segment or I'm just going to go to northwest England and go and pick on courses there and see what life's like and see what the other attractions away from golf are like for a day or two. And so that that downtime from travel, you're really minimising and it allows you to do more stuff on your holiday and and also carry it out if you've got family or, or non-golfing people to tow. I think, too, the current environment, we're all seeing regular photos of piles of golf travel bags at airports and seeing people screaming on Twitter at airlines about where their stuff is. So if you can minimise internal flights, I think that's an absolute godsend, particularly at the moment. I'm sure that will sort itself out in time. But maybe, you know, for the next 18 months, that's just a reality of travelling. And if you can if you can not play golf bag roulette mid-trip, that's going to be you know, a pretty a pretty comforting thing. Yeah, I, I can't imagine what that would be like three days into a nine-day golf trip if you were just staring at your phone screen and looking at the location of your tile or your air tags. Yeah, we had, uh, when we were, we were travelling, when we had a five-year-old and a two-year-old and we got to Italy and our stroller went missing. And it was, you know, obviously that's not quite as serious as your golf club's going missing. But it was this, like, well, what do I do? No, I can't can't carry a five-year-old and a two-year-old around Rome for three days. And, you know, Alitalia was as unhelpful as you might imagine an Italian service provider to be. And it it really is. Like there are things that are intrinsic to your trip being a success. On a golf trip, there's obviously nothing that ranks higher than the golf clubs. So, yeah, hopefully that's an issue that, that goes away very soon. But... God, round the open, looking at the piles of clubs in um, in Edinburgh Airport was just heartbreaking. Yeah. Apart from the logistics and the distance you cover, you're wanting to talk about some specifics relating to courses in Australia that we see more and more these days. Courseworks, construction updates, all sorts of things that impact on people's plans when they come to play here. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that American visitors often are quite taken by is how many courses in Australia have a 19th hole? And often it's a 19th hole that's a, this is not a 19th hole where you drink beer and eat chips. This is a spare hole on the course because seemingly we can't help ourselves at tweaking and tinkering and making change to the point that clubs have gone and built a proper 19th hole, which in the cases of some sandbelt clubs, you know, these tend to be obviously short par threes. Some of the best par threes on the sandbelt are spare holes that are rarely played. You know, Metro's is amazing. Kingston Heaths obviously gets used every time there's a there's a big tournament. Uh, Woodlands has a really nice hole that Tom Doak built. I guess the reality is that we do tend to make a lot of change. Um, and you and I just chatting about this factor today, thinking about that consideration for travellers. If you if you look at it right now, you've got Commonwealth has just started to tear up nine greens for a reworking. Seven Mile Beach is obviously being constructed, you know, a Greenfield brand new course. Uh, Brisbane's just won the right to host the 2032 Olympics. And so Royal Queensland, which will host the golf for that, is undergoing another renovation only, what, 15 years after after Mike Clayton did his work there. Gil Hance is going to be redesigning Royal Sydney soon. Um, and New South Wales is also looking at at a redesign in in the next couple of summers. So it's 
quite a lot of courses that would probably be on the list that you've come up with. And there's a good chance one or two of the courses is going to at least have a hole or two out, potentially be rebuilding three or four greens at any given time, Matty. Yeah. Arm End is another course to add to that list. Little little course just not too far from Hobart that's that's uh, going to add to that swing of golf down in Tasmania. And, they're, yeah, they're, they're definitely things to be cognizant of. It's not just a matter of inquiring as to when courses will punch their greens or if there's any temporaries. You're right. That New South Wales change has been something that they've discussed for a while and the, and the, the Royal Sydney course changes have been discussed for a while. There's been some sort of resistance to the Royal Sydney plan on vegetation grounds from locals. That doesn't seem to be sort of progressing at any great pace, that, that coursework. Are you able to talk at all about what's happening in New South Wales at the moment and where their plans are for courseworks? Yeah, I think I can. Uh, to the point that I guess one of the things you realise is when you join you know, a, a club is that a regular member of a club doesn't necessarily have that much input or that much knowledge of, of you know, the nth degree of detail, but you know, obviously, I'm I'm fairly interested in these types of things. So it's something I've taken a fair bit of, a fair bit of notice of and tried to chat to the right people about what's going to happen. Obviously, we were all super excited in I guess it was 2018 or so when when Tom Doak was announced as the consultant to do a renovation of the course. You know, 18 greens and redo bunkers, and you know, he's got 10 of the best courses that have ever been built. So obviously, anyone who's who's keen on architecture and knows his kind of placing golf as, you know, I guess the modern Mackenzie himself, but also a real student of Alistair Mackenzie's work. You know, he wrote the book on Alistair Mackenzie quite literally. Pretty excited about that that marriage. I think from the outset, it was clear, I think, that New South Wales Golf Club was much more into Tom Doak than Tom Doak was into New South Wales Golf Club. And I don't say that as a criticism of Tom. I think it was that Tom at that point was already sort of winding down his consulting business and, you know, New South Wales is a top 50 in the world club. If they contact you and say about this piece of work, I think that's difficult to say I'm not interested, but it was certainly something that, you know, everyone, everyone in, in the board that made the decision really just wanted to throw Tom Doak the keys and say, do it. I guess previous boards at the club have made some poor decisions around well, engaging Greg Norman as our consultant over a lengthy period of time and some of the changes that that Norman made have left the members kind of once bitten, twice shy. Or um, well, to be fair, I think Norman bit them about three or four times. So there's some members who've been in the club for quite a long time who have lived through changes and potentially not got the outcome from those changes that they would have liked. And I guess in a pragmatic sense, those members wanted a lot of certainty around, okay, what are we signing up for? Um, and I think quite reasonably the, the current board wanted to make sure that the members, you know, were part of this process and really had a seat at the table. I guess one of the outcomes, as I understand it, is that there was, you know, a need for a firm set of plans for the members to approve and then for Tom to build. And obviously, you know, Tom Doak doesn't work that way. You know, Gil Hance, Bill Corr, Mike Cocking and Ashley Mead, Mike Clayton, you know, Mike DeVries, none of the none of the kind of preeminent current architects tend to work that way. And I think at that point, that's where you realise that this is just not the right marriage. You know, the club kind of quite understandably wants to do it the way that they want to do it because they're managing a 1,000 people who are, who are stakeholders and shareholders. 
Tom isn't going to change the way he works after 25 years of, you know, becoming one of the probably three best architects to ever build golf courses. And so I think the right thing to do was just to say, this isn't just, isn't the right combination at the right time. Um, so yeah, that's where in April, I think we're, we're advised that Tom's moved on. So supposedly there's now four firms that the club's looking at to, to step in and, and continue that work. Although, Mackenzie and Ebert are the only ones that they've named. So I think that probably gives us a reasonable steer where the club's going to go. Um, we were looking at a 2023-24 summer for the, for the Tom Doak work. I think that's probably a year further down the track now with the time that's been lost with the change of personnel. But I mean, Mackenzie and Ebert have done some incredible work at Hirono and Turnbury, um, you know, St. Ports, County Down, a host of really good links courses that you know, if for the people who listen to episode one, Matt, the types of courses you skipped on your trip to Scotland, yes. uh, really great <laughs> courses that just haven't hosted an open. And I think, you know, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm just finding silver linings left, right and centre because it suits me too, but I'm actually kind of interested to see a British link-centric take on our golf course. It's very Australian. You know, I, I, love, I love the types of work that Tom does, but I'm also kind of interested to see what these guys will do for us. I think ultimately it's probably got more unmet potential than any other course in the world top hundred, certainly that I've seen or that I'm familiar with. And so the idea that someone will come in and fix some really obvious and glaring problems and bring, you know, the six least good holes up to the standard of the six in the middle holes. Yeah. It's pretty exciting for us, but yeah, you know, no one wants to be the club that, lost Tom Doak, but we are. Um, but, you know, I think there's reason to think that it's still going to be a pretty good outcome for us. Yeah, I think I think the familiarity with his work at Turnbury, I think that's particularly relevant for what would be done at, um, at New South Wales. People could be justifiably excited about what Mackenzie and Rupert would do on a, on a similar sort of plot. I thought it was interesting so, too, Matty, you mentioned Royal Sydney. And um, so I actually had some... I had some involvement um, with Royal Sydney for a, for a short period of time when they were preparing to go to council for the first time with that redevelopment plan. I think it's a really educational story for golf generally in the world, what's happened at Royal Sydney, and it's kind of revolving around that social licence for golf in urban areas is changing, and it's not what it was certainly 100 years ago. It's not what it was even 20 years ago in terms of, people challenging how urban green space is used and managed and having a significant opinion on it and getting a significant ear from the authorities. We saw it similarly in Sydney with the Lord Mayor of Sydney trying to close down Moor Park Golf Course, which is this, you know, essentially for New Yorkers, it would be like if you had a really good public course in Central Park or in Hyde Park in London. It's right in the middle of the city. You know, it's fantastically popular. But at Royal Sydney, you've got, notably, it's in a really blue ribbon part of the city. It's got some pretty influential people around it. And it's what we often find now with, with modern changes to golf courses that Royal Sydney wants to remove a whole heap of pine trees and oaks and things that have no place being on that piece of land. They're not indigenous. They're not good for flora and fauna biodiversity. They're certainly not good for golf. Remove those, replace them with a lot of the kind of heath plants and indigenous um, you know, East Coast Banksia scrub is what it's called in Sydney. And it's what a lot of the East, Eastern suburbs of Sydney were covered in 
you know, before the first fleet arrived, but the neighbours liked the big green trees and they like that kind of screening element. And so golf, I think golf clubs need to be better at articulating why what we're doing is actually great for biodiversity. You see a whole heap of reports that golfers are all aware of that golf is actually really good for the environment in the way that we maintain and care for courses in the 21st century. But there's this outdated view that golf is full of pesticides and fertilizers, you know, up to your neck. And and the clubs too, I think, have to be better at reaching out and putting their arms around the community. You know, pri- private golf clubs are really good at putting up a big set of steel gates and saying, this is our, you know, it's our property, we'll do what we want. I just don't think that flies in the 21st century. Uh, and certainly in those kind of inner city areas, I think clubs are just going to find that either they don't get to do the work they want to do or certainly public courses seem to be the ones that bear the brunt of this. They just lose their golf course. Albert Park was under threat years ago, potentially becoming nine holes rather than 18. Northcote Golf Club, a couple of miles north of the CBD, that was a, a focus of huge media attention during lockdown times and locals who were starved for green space wanting to reclaim some of that. That's only going to be more and more prevalent, that sort of storyline, I agree. And I think that's, you know, it's this is the time where we need to, as a, as a game and as a supporter base, we need to learn those lessons and really try to organise ourselves and understand what golf's role is in, in the modern era. And, you know, at Northcote, the local council decided that was, you know, no golf after 3pm. You know, it became a public park at 3pm. I mean, those sorts of arrangements are not, are not workable. You know, the, the old course famously is closed and is open as a park on a Sunday, but you know, just at the at the strike of three PM, just deciding that's now a public park. I just don't think that's. But look, as we as we suspected, we might in the first episode, we've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole that's not wandered along, not specifically relevant to planning a golf trip to Australia. But I think it is probably one of the major one of the major issues that faces the game. So yeah, certainly if you're coming to Australia and you're organising a golf trip, um, really being in touch with the clubs, give them a call and asking about any planned work or. You know, having a look on on social media, obviously they're they're all pretty good at at promoting what's coming up and what's changing. Because certainly you might find that one of the courses that you want to uh, you want to visit isn't necessarily going to be able to receive you. One of the things that I was keen to do in show notes for subsequent episodes as well was to include links for unaccompanied interstate and overseas guests to inquire at all of these clubs. Uh, so if we focus on New South Wales and the Lakes and the Australian and Royal Sydney in one particular episode, I'll, I'll make sure that there's links in our show notes so that anyone who's planning a trip to these shores can access those channels of communication with the club. Yeah. One of the other things that struck me, Maddie, is I was thinking about in Sydney, we call them Varden events. Uh, in Melbourne, I'm not 100% sure of the name, but the kind of the low handicap, three or four handicap and lower open club events. Now, Ivo's. Yep. I've So those for a visiting golfer who is a say a scratch handicap are potentially a good way to play some really good courses. Obviously the time of year is going to be dictated to you. But the New South Wales Cup is on at New South Wales Golf Club first Saturday of February every year. And you're paying something like two hundred and fifty bucks to play thirty six holes in tournament setup. I know um, a quick review down in down in Melbourne. A lot of the Sandbelt clubs are hosting Ivo events. I think that's certainly a bit of a backdoor way that if you're if you're a really good amateur player and your timing can be flexible, 
there's certainly a way, you know, you're playing those courses typically on a Saturday or a Sunday, you're playing with some other really good players and the courses tend to be really set up to the nines for those events. Yeah, that's a good suggestion. I hadn't thought of that. And to be to be honest, I'm not sure what it's like for entry for overseas golfers in those events down in Melbourne, but it's worth, I might do a Definitely bit more digging on that and report back. Yeah, I'll see, I'll see what the lay of the land is in that regard. Now, we were going to touch on why, why golf is great in Australia and why we're endowed with such wonderful courses, why it is that people want to come here. And it's not just climate or locals, but locals are obviously a big part of it. We have, we have wonderful courses, as Scott said before. We have 10 courses inside the World Top 100, arguably a couple more if you wanted to nitpick, but everyone has their own little issues with those lists. But we, yeah, at the top end, those sort of, Got to see this before I die. Destinations in Australia; those those wonderful courses are really something, and I I don't think it's just local pride that makes me say that they stack up really well with anything else anywhere in the world. Um, those those discussions that pop up on Twitter or other social media channels periodically that quiz people as to the best region for golf in the world is it the Heathlands of Surrey, is it Long Island, is it the Sandbelt in Melbourne? Yeah, we. We're extremely fortunate to have such a concentration of such good courses in one spot there and then more broadly across that eastern seaboard, as you said, in New South Wales and Victoria and Toby. And, Matty, being familiar with the three locations that you have just name-checked, it's not a stretch that if your answer to that question is the sand belt, you know, that's that's an easily defensible defensible position, notwithstanding some of the incredible courses on Long Island and, and in London. I think the depth of the sand belt, is is quite impressive um certainly as a region even before you tack on the mornington peninsula which you know is as close to melbourne as really long island is to some of the courses in say westchester it's just mind-blowing how good it is uh so certainly a long trip but a worthwhile trip definitely and we were talking in planning for this episode how lots of those lots of the courses in that region, but also lots of the best courses in the country full stop, tended to come from that first golden age around the time of Mackenzie's visit and a little bit after. And then there seemed to be this distinct second batch that came along in what most architecture buffs would refer to as the second golden age that we're sort of in the twilight of today. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's notable that, you know, obviously the Golf Australia magazine panel is our go-to panel in Australia. And looking at that list, so all of the Aussie top 20 were either designed or substantially redesigned either between 1926 and 1937 or from 2000 to present. You go stretch that to the top 25. It's only um, the national old course down on the Mornington Peninsula that ranks 24th, and that was Robert Trent Jones Jr. who built that in 1987. So the first course in the rankings, that's outside either of those two golden ages. And I think you know, that's pretty typical as well of golf in America sort of first and second golden ages dominate rankings. Uh, and in between that, you know, there's some interesting there's some interesting things that I think brought about that second golden age and why it happened when it did and how it did. But, you know, I'm sophomore, uh, freshman year of, you know, 101 Mackenzie's visit. I know that's something that you're much more well-schooled in. I thought it'd be interesting to go through how he came to be here you know, because ultimately that's how we came to have what we have today in Australia as far as golfers. I'm, I'm probably a bit biased, but I think it really is. Royal Melbourne really had the, the wish to upgrade their course. Uh, the club was founded in 1891 and changed location 
changed location again and indeed had an Australian Open over a course at Sandringham in the early 1920s and then rode away to the Royal and Ancient Golf Club in St Andrews and said, we want to make some changes to our course or we want a new course and they sought advice and the RNA came back to Royal Melbourne and said, we recommend this guy. And it, that was Alistair McKenzie who by that stage had finished his famous map of the old course, had done a little bit of consulting to the RNA and was clearly well known to them and they were impressed with him. Uh, he'd done some of his work throughout the UK already at that time. So Mackenzie sailed out here in the second half of 1926, spent two and a half months here. And one of the really ingenious things that Royal Melbourne did was reach out to various other clubs as far north as Queensland, as, as far west as Royal Adelaide, um, several clubs in New South Wales, various others throughout Melbourne, and said, we have this travelling expert with us for a short time. He's not going to be exclusively with us. Would you like him on loan? He'll cost X number of pounds. And Mackenzie and the club had brokered a deal where 50% of Mackenzie's consulting fees to each of these clubs who came knocking on his door would be surrendered back to Royal Melbourne. And by the time he left at the end of 1926, I reckon that Royal Melbourne had probably made a profit, uh, garnered more money from their neighbouring peer clubs lending Mackenzie out for days at a time than they did in sailing him out here and paying him for his services to begin with. But he, he certainly established a flavour locally. Kingston Heath was in play at that stage at Cheltenham, where they, where they are at, at, at Kingston Road. That, that course was already in the ground and being played by members. So a Scotsman, Dan Souter, had designed uh, Kingston Heath. But there were no bunkers on it, and so Mackenzie had designed a bunkering scheme. He famously did one or two other little things while he was at Kingston Heath. Uh, he shortened the 15th, so that, that iconic uphill par 3 15th is really his whole. It's, it's, its form is really thanks to McKenzie's little tweak there and shortening it and putting the green where it is. You touched on something in our earlier episode, Scott, about um, McKenzie influencing Morecambe, the greenkeeper who helped build Royal Melbourne's courses, and Alec Russell, who worked alongside him, as Hunter did at Cypress Point and, and Maxwell did at other sites in the US. I reckon that that influence of Mackenzie on Alec Russell is really important. That just continues a, a lineage from that 1926 visit for decades on. Mackenzie had long since left Australia and Alec Russell had gone on to design uh, Lake Karen up over in Perth, uh, Yarra Yarra here in, Royal, uh, in, in Melbourne, as well as Royal Melbourne East. He'd also gone on to do Paraparumu Beach over in New Zealand. Fast forward a little bit and then we see people like Mike Clayton and Jeff Ogilvie and Mike Cocking who spend their formative golf years playing on those courses and then those guys merge into careers in design and they've been heavily shaped by what they played in their youth and, and now they're sort of bringing a similar flavour to the courses that they build that, that we enjoy today. Places like Barnboogle Dunes and St Andrews Beach and others that people will come to visit from all corners of the world. Absolutely. I wonder too, in the modern time, how much that Mackenzie legacy was supported in Australia by having the Masters tournament at one of his courses every single April. I think that in terms of marketing, you know, his his position in, in the golden age of golf architecture, there's no no missing that. I think if you, know, you speculated in our first episode, what if what if Harry Colt came? You know, Harry Colt was a spectacular golf architect, but I know Mackenzie had 
something about him and something about his his legacy. I think that yeah, it helped that bloodline and that celebration of him be strong right through to to the modern time. And it is interesting that that tree of you know Mackenzie, you know to Morecambe and Russell to Morecambe's son Vern Morecambe, you know right through the superintendents at Royal Melbourne who then to this day you know. As I understand, and you're the expert here, but Richard Forsyth, you know, rather than coring greens, they they kind of tile to detach the greens the way that Morecambe originally did. So it's a lot of those really treasured traditions and connections with with Mackenzie are still hanging around in one way or another. Definitely, Vern Morecambe was super at Kingston Heath for decades, and when you have such prolonged tenure at a great course and such modest turnover in staff, you I think it's far more likely that you're going to get those little pearls of wisdom passed from from one super to the next, and that they survive right up to current day. Yeah, and they can they can they can be bunker construction, they can be turf management, as you said, they can be other little things too. So, speaking of of the current day, that's you know this last twenty years has been an incredible time to observe golf as a as a as a passionate traveling golfer. All around the world, you know, there's been these incredible developments and it's really been a time for Australia, you know, to stake its its claim as as not just this golden age destination, but it has some of the most incredible modern creations. And I think in a cultural sense as well, it's interesting to layer that with how Australia has matured in that time. When you look at the 70s and 80s, Australia was very much a, a miniature Britain, you know, that had absolute man crush on America and just wanted to be them and probably didn't think it was worthy. And through the 90s and then early 2000s, I think Australia, at least in my observation growing up in that time, it found its identity and it started to believe it could and that it was worthy and equal, you know, rather than just being being less than than those big Western powers. We also see, you know, our population grows a huge amount in that time we see that international travel becomes infinitely easier and cheaper and faster in the years that we're looking at through through aircraft technology to the point that, so in 1979, 800,000 people from overseas visited Australia. 20 years later, that was 4.5 million. And in 2019, right before COVID joined us, that was 9.5 million. So it was a time of boom and and real starting to really run for Australia, I think, as a country. And so when you look at the 2000 and afterwards period, probably for me, it's, it's instructive to look at the, at the 10 years before that. And maybe we start with, we mentioned earlier, Robert Trent Jones coming down, in, coming down to Australia in the late 80s. And yeah, he designed uh, Joondalup in Perth. He designed National Old. And that was really a big bang. That was the start of the National Golf Club they had they had his course up on the on the ridge there overlooking the southern ocean and that was that was a significant new development you know in golf in melbourne which was obviously remains kind of the home of our great courses here was this new course that immediately debuted high in the rankings and had a lot of lot of notice but still through the 90s we saw you know sanctuary cove on the gold coast hiring arnold palmer to design a course um, even as late as 97 Jack Nicholas doing a signature design at Lakelands on the Gold Course, on the Gold, uh, the Gold Coast, which is just as forgettable a golf course, you know, as there could be. 
it's not known really widely, but in the late 90s when the National Golf Club, huge success around the course that Trent Jones built them, was expanding with two more courses right down on a bit more of a, you know, you would call it broadly linksy compared to what's up on the cliffs there. Two new courses. Tom Doak actually bid to build one of those courses before he was, you know, Tom Doak. He was he was this architect from Michigan. Missed out. I was a I was a young man, if I can interrupt there for a sec, Scott. I was a young man who was a member at the National at that time, and I had written a very impassioned plea to the chairman of National Golf Holdings at that time, asking him to very seriously consider this young man from Michigan named Tom Doak. Um, that fell on deaf ears, though. So I'm curious about this, Matty, because this is not something I knew. So late 90s is not, you know, the internet's not ripping and tearing the way it is now. Social media doesn't exist. Tom hasn't built Pacific Dunes yet. So how does how does a young bloke from Melbourne even know about Tom Doak at that point? Uh, the confidential guide. That would You're have right. been it. And so I you- reckon that I reckon the rise of things, the rise of things from a golf architecture perspective, is I, it happens a little bit as a consequence of that the dissemination of knowledge that happens with internet forums and guys like you and I and lots of other architecture buffs all find one another and start to talk. And then there were, there were a few more books published on it as well at that time. But, um, yeah, it's, it, there can't have been very many people within that club who knew anything about Tom Doak. They would have just seen Peter Thompson, Greg Norman's names and remembered their open victories and thought, great, these guys can design a course for us. So when National hired Tom to blow up the ocean course and, and build a new one a few years ago, did you hunt down that old chairman of National Golf Holdings <laughs> and give him the good old I told you so? No, 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 not at all, not at all. Um, I, I did have a little smile and I, I think of it every time I go down and play Gunnamatta because it, I think it's a clearly superior course to what was there. It's a very different course to what was there, but I think it's far superior to what first occupied that spot. Yeah, and, I mean, you talking about... about Doak, I think he is, without giving too much singular credit to anybody, because I think this is a really layered thing, you know, and before I move on and I'll forget, I think people really overlook Duncan Andrews and Tony Cashmore, you know, the Dunes opening in 1995 and being a real precursor to all of the things that we celebrate now. 13th Beach, Beach Course followed in 2001, also developed by Duncan and, and designed by Tony. Uh, obviously, Duncan would go on to develop Cape Wickham. I think that his contribution is probably under-celebrated, and I think some of the lamentable stuff that that Tony might have been involved in on the sandbelt subsequently with, with redesign work maybe has clouded that, that fact that the Dunes and 13th Beach are two two courses that really came before a lot of courses that are celebrated for being exactly what those two courses are. Uh, and sometimes those things get get forgotten. But so Tom Doak, obviously very significant to the fact that after he built Pacific Dunes, he was he was quite well known to Greg Ramsey, who had been studying, his young Tasmanian had been studying in Scotland, was aware of, of Tom's work and went and really pleaded with a potato farmer on the north coast of, of Tasmania who had some incredible links land, Richard Sattler, to build a golf course. And it was, you know, chatting to Mike Kaiser who developed Bandon Dunes Resort, which, you know, Pacific Dunes was the second course there, was thinking, well, I've got this sandy land. I can't farm it. 
may as well try this. Was convinced, you know, you hire the same guy that built this course that I've done in in Oregon. Subsequent to that, Tom and and Mike Clayton, obviously working with Tom on these developments, building St Andrews Beach down on the Mornington Peninsula. The next year, you've got those two courses and the uh, the Mooner course at National that Bob Harrison built with Greg Norman. They're all in the top ten in the country, and I think that's that's the lesson then that. All of these fantastic old 1920s and 1930s clubs that had just always been the best because there was nothing new coming through, all of a sudden they needed to really reflect on what they'd become. And we've seen some famous photos from Kingston Heath through the 70s and early 80s. You mentioned you know, the iconic par 3, 15th hole, that you know, it might be the most photographed hole in Australia and certainly one of the most celebrated for good reason, was absolutely choked in tea tree. The bunkering had been neutered. You know the the views that that are kind of part of the deception of the green were were gone. So even these great holes that even now we just say, well, yeah, that's always been a great hole. A lot of that had fallen into some disrepair, and I think we have, in a large part, you know, Tom Doak, Richard Sattler, Mike Clayton, a bit of a stew of of influences, but to thank for the wake up call that a lot of those clubs got, um, and we continue to see them doing work to to make themselves better and. Kingston Heath's maybe been the poster child for that in the last 10 years. It feels like every time you go to Kingston Heath, there's something little that's been tweaked. You know, there's some misplaced tree that's come out or a bunker that's been slightly moved to put it back where it should have been. It's quite a significant influence. And, you know, at the risk of at the risk of fanboying Tom too much, I just think when you go back and you look at the cold hard facts of of where courses were until those two courses opened, I just think it had an incredible influence on golf in this country. They've definitely improved as time has gone on in the last 20 years. Um, vegetation management and, as you said, just little tweaks, not change for change's sake, but just little improvements. And Kingston Heath's probably, they've been the poster child for that. They've just been very ably led and got every bit of juice out of the lemon and never put a foot wrong in terms of stewardship of their course and cherishing what they have. So I guess the last consideration for us to include and, you know, last consideration for this podcast probably should be one of the first considerations for someone who's visiting down here is the time of year that that you're planning your trip. You know, we have famously a pretty all-year-round climate in global senses, but I think personally there's there's probably four months where, I absolutely love to play golf. I'm in Sydney. If I'm going down to Melbourne, it's the same four months. You know, in, if you're in Tasmania, it's probably the same four months. You know, I think timing timing a trip for me, for a few reasons, it's March and April and then October and November, I think. If you're planning a trip and you can position them, position the trip in those months, you'd be absolutely crazy, in my opinion, to go either high summer or in winter, Matty. Yeah, I think certainly down here, high summer, January, February can get blisteringly hot some days. It just gets oppressive sometimes if you're going to try and fit 36 into a day. The um, risk of electrical storms. Yeah, I've, I've famously had some friends from other countries come and play golf around those first few weeks of the year and we've been caught in some amazing storms <laughs> that have just, yeah, been seven holes in, 12 holes in, siren sounded and you're back in the clubhouse for the rest of the day. 
no good if you're on borrowed time from the other side of the world to, to wipe out 24 hours with that sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, you raise a good point about those, those months being really good in terms of temperature and, and weather, but in terms of turf as well, you've, you've got cooch or Bermuda grasses out of dormancy in November and they're still thriving and arguably at their best in March and early April, certainly down here in, in, in southern locations in Melbourne. Daylight saving also is a really, really important consideration on that front as well. So that, that gives you a lot more time to fit in another nine, a second 18. If you're going to visit a place like Royal Melbourne, if you want to go play east and west in one day, or if you're on the sand belt and you want to go see something in the morning and then something after lunch. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that March and April as well, cooch grass, which yeah, is Bermuda, Bermuda grass in the, in the Northern Hemisphere, same, same grass, it gets a bad rap for being, you know, it's a bit sticky and and grippy in the height of summer. And then in our winter, you know, it goes dormant. The first few weeks of dormancy is magnificent. It's like playing on fescue. Then it gets damp and there's lots of divots and it's not so much fun at the end of winter. But March and April, I feel like the weather cools down, the grass loses a little bit of its grippiness, but it's still, you know, really healthy turf to play off. There's sort of just this sweet spot where there's always a game of golf each year where I, I'll hit a shot that I think is going to just grip on the first bounce and it just kind of takes a bit of a skip off the turf. And, you know, after the inevitable disappointment that it's over the back of the green, there's kind of this excitement that, all right, you know, the next six to eight weeks is going to be good. If I can duck out of work early and play golf, I'm going to make sure I can because this is the time of year that that's the most fun. So I think certainly for North Americans as well, that late March into April, you're potentially not playing golf if you live, you know, in the northern states. So good opportunity as well as October and November are to extend your season. You know, you might be coming out here, I guess, out of practice if you're in March or April. Uh, you'll certainly go back in form for member guest season. So that's a consideration. Pay off some of the pay off some of the Australian golf trip with winnings. Or coming in October and November and just when you'd usually be putting the clubs away and thinking about this is the off-season, I'm going to finally get fit. You can come to Australia and just get that extra little bit of time out of your out of your golf season. Yeah, they're, they're really good points. And I think the one of the other benefits of travelling around that time is that there's, there's probably less competition in terms of board events and club championships and various events like that where members would be occupying their courses for a really, really high percentage of the week. So those windows should afford visitors a bit more of an opportunity to play without battling big fields and, and daylight. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess March and April, if we if we consider people maybe aren't coming down here just to exclusively play golf and then rest up, March and April, you know, in Sydney and Melbourne give you the opportunity to go to a go to a rugby league game or go to an Aussie rules game, you know, at the MCG. Those two those two things are really significant parts of of the Australian culture in those cities. And if you think that that they're impressive to watch on TV. I think going to going to a stadium, particularly a packed MCG to watch, you know, a grudge match between two of the Melbourne teams would be a really great thing to do, you know, to add some colour to your trip. Yeah, that's a great shout. The um the other big attractions in Melbourne, certainly in that at that time, Moomba, this big cultural festival where we we um we tend to run it over the, the Labor Day long weekend in March. And the Formula One Grand Prix down here in Melbourne as well. That would be a, a magnet yeah, for a lot a of point. visitors. And November, obviously, the Melbourne Cup horse race. And if you want to watch 
bogans get really drunk in a paddock that's really you know the peak opportunity that we can offer you uh, and there's also a really famous horse race run that day but it's kind of secondary right yeah exactly. well i think that's uh that's sort of the lay of the land i think again we we went off piste a couple of times there but that's going to be that's going to be a uh a thing that you're going to get used to on this podcast i think from here on i think we're ready to jump into profiling some courses and some regions really curious actually from listeners if it's like you know those unknown unknowns things that we might not know that they're thinking about or wondering about that they might like us to to consider when we're talking about regions and courses you know australian golf passport on instagram and twitter matt mollica scott warren our own handles you'll find us pretty easily from the australian golf passport handle We'd love to hear what you're what you're curious about, what you're interested in. But yeah, from here on, gonna jump in to some courses and some regions looking at, you know, what your consideration should be, the courses that are absolute must plays, you know, the the second tier, third tier, maybe public courses that we think offer you some real value. But Maddie, I think we'd be we'd be doing golf in Australia to service if we started anywhere other than Royal Melbourne. So I think episode three, we're gonna dive deep into everything you wanted to know and a lot of stuff you probably didn't want to know about Royal Melbourne. I'm looking forward to being in your hands for that. I am absolutely buzzing at the thought of it already, Scott. It is going to be good. It's going to be really, really good. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate the support that we've had so far. Maddie. this is even more fun than I thought it was going to be. So appreciate, mate, everything you're doing to keep this thing on the rails. And uh, talk to you again soon. Will do. Likewise. Thanks, Scott. Cheers, mate.